0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, President of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And as always, I'm delighted to have you with me, and today's episode is going to be Part confession, I guess you could say, and part exhortation, and hopefully all encouraging. I I confess to you that I've been, oh, you know, I guess, struggling in anguish, perhaps even might be the right word, over what I've been doing the last twenty-something years in politics in recent months and i want to talk a little bit about that today why i've been so troubled the last few months about what i've spent my life doing and what god is teaching me about what i was doing and what i believed in the doing of it because um to be honest i think it's wrong and I see myself in so much of what I see going on in the realm of law and policy and politics. And so I hope this is beneficial to you. So I was thinking about how I would launch today and what I've just described. So I'm going to ask you a question. If I were to make the following statement to you, would you say yes? I am with you. Count me in. Now, here's the statement. In the name of God, we will embrace and apply better than the godless the ways of the godless to achieve righteous ends. Let me repeat the sentence again. In the name of God, we will embrace and apply better than the godless the ways of the godless to achieve righteous ends. In other words, I can be godless better than you can be godless, and by my godless ways of doing things, more godless than you, I can do righteous things. Now, that was a tanged hungler. Well, the point is, I've come to conclude that most of my life What I was doing in the name of righteousness, in the name of God, was nothing more than the way the godless do what they do. Only my goal was to have a righteous end and disregard the means or the instrumentality towards my end. And here's what, to be honest, has been troubling me. And I remember conversations early on that I had the potential with the Family Action Council of Tennessee to build a strong network of Christians who could be informed of what was really going on in the Capitol because, you know, I knew the process. I'd been in the state Senate for 12 years and I was a lawyer, so I knew the games, the process, the procedure, the players. And the law. And and we needed somebody like that so we could marshal our forces and become a strong voice at the state capitol. Now, I'm also going to tell you, in part, that's why I left the state senate. You see, in the year 2000, the Tennessee Supreme Court was one of the early states to hold that there was a right to abortion in the Tennessee Constitution. I worked from the 2001 legislative session till I retired in 2006, trying to pass a resolution to put on the ballot an amendment to the Tennessee Constitution that would say there's no right to abortion. And, and I did get it passed in the Senate. We were a more conservative body, but it was going nowhere in the House. In fact, over that five-year period, it didn't even get out of a subcommittee in the House to a full committee let alone through the calendar committee, let alone to the floor. And so I left and I thought, you know, I can keep beating my head against the wall here. or I can go out and marshal up the forces, let them know what's going on, let them know that our state is now becoming an abortion destination because we didn't have any abortion laws. And, and people would come across the border and from Kentucky and Alabama and Mississippi and Arkansas and, and Georgia. You know, we border so many states uh, and have major cities on those borders and people just coming across. We had even people performing abortions in motels, setting up abortion clinics in Memphis in a motel room and performing them there for people that would drive across from Arkansas. So, So that's what I said about doing. And what I've realized, the more I've thought about what I was doing and what I see still being done. I mean, I'm doing, or I have been doing, I guess you could say, what, what all the other policy groups that I know do. Now, not legal organizations, because they don't make direct appeals to legislators and to constituents. But, but the policy, the Christian policy organizations, whether they're state-based or national-based, they all operate the same way. And I realized that the way we do things and the reason for the doing of them is the same as was formulated by Jerry Falwell in the Moral Majority in 1979, and by Pat Robertson in the Christian Coalition in the late 1980s. So, essentially, consider this: two preachers help start organizations to marshal Christian voices, marshal Christian votes, and put pressure on legislative bodies to enact righteous laws. Now, that's exactly what the liberals were doing. And, you know, sometimes I think we ought to stop and say, if we're doing the same things the godless are doing, are we doing the right thing? But we justified it because our end was righteous. But the end should determine the means. That was a, a great statement by John Owens. Now, here's, here's the thing about the ends. The ends should be to glorify God, because that's why everything was created and why it remains in existence and continues in existence is for the glory of God. So if the end is passing legislation, then that means is a You know, perhaps the best one, and the liberals got it right. But if the end is to glorify God, then that should determine the means. And how does God get glory when we have uh, outdone the godless in their own methods and methodology? Maybe we get some satisfaction out of that. You know, I beat you at your own game. But I was thinking, are we playing the wrong game? Is that why now— uh, going on 40 something years that that were worse off than we were remember the the moral majority got really started around the issues of abortion and and homosexuality And it it wasn't until last year that Roe versus Wade was reversed, but we still didn't know what human beings were. And so every state gets to vote on whether the unborn are still persons and human beings. And we've gone from uh, fighting open homosexuality to same-sex marriage now to transgenderism. And so you have to think if I keep doing things the same way, will I not get the same result? Now, Here's where I want to go with this today. It would be easy for us to pass this failure off as God, quote, succeeding in his plan to lead his people to temporal and cultural defeat. You know, that kind of overarching pessimism about Christianity was drummed into my head by preachers all my life. And, you know, to be honest, Jerry Falwell preached that same kind of pessimism. We need to escape and go to heaven. And yet, he was spending all this time and energy to change the laws. I mean, isn't that the policy of the brass on a sinking ship kind of thing? But consider this. If God created this world Out of an overflow of the infinite and eternal love that is the triune and personal God. He didn't create out of any need in himself, any lack of fulfillment in himself. It was an overflow of the love that is God. Love is not something that's a part of God or an addendum to God's being. God is love. His being is love. It is the source of all love. And if he intended to reveal himself and what he created, which we're told is the case, and if everything he created was very good by his own judgment and confession, then I don't think we can be pessimists. Even though pessimism dominates the church today. And here's why. To be cultural pessimists, we must believe that God decided to abandon his creation. But, but if that's the case, then the incarnation of his son and his death, resurrection, ascension, and promised return, um, they seem rather silly, to be honest. Why not just wipe everything out and start over from scratch and just do it better the second time? I mean, why didn't he actually do that in the days of Noah rather than let them keep thinking they could make some progress and would come to a better end when it's going to be a more miserable end, right? At least he started over here, right? Uh, but 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 not from scratch. But why why didn't he just do that? God does not abandon the work of his hands because if he did, the incarnation makes no sense. I mean, think about it. What was God doing in Christ by the Holy Spirit if not making all things new? If he wasn't instituting a new creation. And we see that being prophesied in Isaiah chapters 42 verse 9, 43 19, chapter 65, verse 17. We see it mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 by the Apostle Paul. Galatians six fifteen, Revelation twenty-one, five. And, and and so we we have to concede that this new creation has started. So did God start a new creation to then destroy it? Or was his only new creation uh people? But he didn't say I've come to create a new people, I've I'm gonna create Make a new creation, new heavens and new earth. Now, notice this. In Isaiah chapter 66, 22, Isaiah writes that the new heavens and the new earth, which we have to concede has begun with Christ. The resurrection of the dead is the first fruits of the new creation, right? And, and he insists that it shall remain before me. Not start and then get wiped out, done away with, and another new start. Now, here's something else that I just heard recently on uh, probably my favorite podcast, uh, Knox Unplugged, Chuck Knox Unplugged. We were delighted to have Knox and uh, Jason Farley here with Dr. George Grant in Nashville. And if any of you want to host a live event in your city, let me encourage you to do it. But as I was listening to them the other day, this is, this is what Jason said, or at least what I heard him say. Uh, these are in my own words, so if if I got it wrong, well, uh, the fault lies with me. But we can't be cultural pessimists if what God wanted to reveal about himself and what he made was the love that God is let me repeat that again we can't be cultural pessimists if what god wanted to reveal about himself and what he made is that god is love and here's why because god's love is not static it's infinite it's eternal and it cannot diminish God's love is of such a nature because it's infinite and eternal that our understanding of it, our experience of it, our understanding of it must grow deeper and must spread more broadly, not shrink in degree and in scope, if what he created is to reveal the infinite, eternal nature of the love that God is. You see, we can debate verses of Scripture and try to proof text some kind of um, premillennialism or amillennialism or postmillennialism out of it. But when we come back to the beginning of our knowledge of who God is and what He's doing in creation, topics that we don't talk a whole lot about, we would see that that there has to be a cultural optimism. God didn't say in Genesis 1, I want you to fill the earth with people who know me and then say, well, that idea was ruined. I'll go to plan B. God never has a plan B. We say that all the time, but then we act as if he went to plan B and he's got to remove us from here because this place is so polluted, it's not redeemable and the new creation isn't going to be new enough, and it can't grow from glory to glory until it reaches a final glory. No, 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 we can't believe that. Why, there's a verse over here that says something that proves that to be the case, when our problem is we don't know the God behind the verse to know how to read the verse. And and we come up with pessimism as the cultural motif For Christianity. Now, when God is that impotent, well, then power is the only alternative you got. Marshal your forces and go to war, right? God isn't going to fight for you. If you're going to prove anything, you're going to improve it by your own means and powers because God, right, He has this plan that we're all supposed to lose. So if that's the case, you know, we need to get out of politics because we're just hindering God's purpose of bringing everything to a complete disaster and end so he can start over. I mean, there's just so much stuff I was taught, my friends, that upon closer inspection in a work of God in my heart and mind just don't make any sense anymore. And Christians swallow it, I guess, because we don't read the Bible well enough ourselves, and do like the Christians did at Berea or Antioch and study the scriptures to see if that's what it says is so, and we're content with some little devotional book that skips around from point to point to point oh man anyway now uh, i'm going to prove that we can have optimism by what the liberals have taught us (laughs) Uh, and this just occurred to me actually today as i was thinking and asking the lord what what should i communicate in today's podcast And I I may have shared some of this before, but there's a wonderful little book Jason Farley encouraged me to read called The Heavenly City of the 18th Century Philosophers. It's by Carl Becker. He was an atheist. It was written in, I think, the early 1920s or so. But he was one of the most influential American historians over the last 100 years, and essentially says, history has no meaning, and it's not really capable of being judged good, bad, right, or wrong. It only has the meaning that we give to the facts. In other words, God hasn't defined things and defined facts and defined actions and attitudes. Uh, We have to define them. So it's a very relativistic view of history. But he made a statement that just keeps lingering in my mind. This is what he said, that we essentially live in a godless cosmos now. And he he said, this is the result of the work of the 18th century philosophers. And this is what he said. Their philosophical empire is of international domain. And France was the mother country and Paris, the capital. So just picture the United States of America and England being the mother country. Uh, country, I guess you could say, and London still being the capital. Here we were as a colony of the mother country, and London was still really our capital. And so he's saying now the whole world, the mother country for the world is France, and its capital city is Paris. And he's referring to the godlessness of the French Revolution in the 18th century that progressed around the whole globe. And he says, so go where you like, England, Holland, Italy, Spain, America, everywhere you meet them. And the them is the, quote, enlightenment philosophers speaking the same language sustained by the same climate of opinion. They are of all countries and of none. They are citizens of the world. In other words, the whole world now lives in a cosmos devoid of any reckoning of the God of the Bible, except perhaps as being, you know, out there somewhere in a spiritual netherland uh, that these unenlightened, ignorant, non-scientific Christians think they're going to escape to when they die. But if there is even any God, he's totally irrelevant. And as I got to thinking about his statement, I mean, it really is true. It's international in scope. And so we need to realize that the Enlightenment thinkers ripped off a page from God's playbook. In other words, they did to the world what the organized church has failed to do. They discipled the people from whom the leaders of the nations came, and they effectively discipled all the nations. The godless did. Think about it. What he's saying here is the godless did what Christians think, that God in Christ, by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, can't do, namely, disciple the nations. The godless actually took more seriously than Christians the idea of discipling the nations—let me start that sentence over—the godless actually took seriously what Christians no longer take seriously because of our limited knowledge of God and his purpose in creation, and that lack of knowledge has made us a band of pessimists. So, my friends, I think what needs to happen here is not that we abandon informing Christians about what's going on in politics, but we need to inform them even when the Christians are making terrible arguments, as I've covered in multiple episodes here, where where leading Christian national organizations are are making godless arguments about we we we're starting to see from scientific evidence that sterilizing a child is harmful. Whoa, isn't that great? We, we got scientists now that are are establishing the truth because there isn't really any human nature that's actually true that sterilizing children is per se harmful. No, we need some scientific proof about that. We need to tell people what's going on. We need to tell them accurately what's going on. We need to tell them, as I try to do here, do not support the organizations that have adopted the ways of the world and not just in the way they argue, but in in, in the belief system that if we can gather enough power, we can make the world. And God must sit in the heavens, and maybe he doesn't laugh at us like he does the godless. But his heart must surely break, saying, oh, would you wait for me? My eyes are roving still through the whole earth to find those whose hearts are fully mine that I can then support and go to war for. But as long as you think you can do it, have at it. Um, I mean, you have been trying since 1979 this way, and it's gotten worse. When will you cry for mercy? When will you look to me? When will you stop making the end, the passing of a law to stop it, a bad thing? When I want to bring about a good thing again, I had bought into the world's way of doing things because that's how the Christian leaders organize things. And I assumed the pastors were telling me this is how the world works. And so we have to get with it. And we need to marshal our troops. And God is saying, I'll fight for you. But you apparently think you can do it by yourself. And that's what I'm repenting of, my friends. That's what I think the church needs to repent from. We need to, I cautiously, these, these pastors that preach pessimism, in essence, inculcate the idea that if we'll just marshal our forces, we can bring about righteousness. God brings about righteousness and salvation. They belong to him. And it's time we start spending more time coming to know him and obey him and do what he said. Disciple people who then can disciple a nation in the way the nation should go. And then righteousness will exalt your nation. Well, that's today's episode. And next week, I think what I'm going to do is talk about why I've given up on a biblical worldview unless it's set in a proper cosmology, an understanding of how the world works. Otherwise, we'll apply the worldview badly, as we've been doing. And I hope you'll join me next week for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's FACTennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Back Tennessee.